Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Welcome back to the top 10 Bobby cast of 2022. My name is Mike D. And on part two, I will be taking you through the top five Bobby cast of the year. If you missed part one, just go back in the feed and listen to what made it into numbers 10 through six. But this is the best of the best of the year. These were our most downloaded, our most interacted with, and the episodes that we encourage you, if you missed them in their entirety, to go back in the feed and listen to these entire hour-long interviews. So let's kick it off with number five. From episode 368, it is Rita Wilson. A little behind the scenes, this one probably took a year to book because Rita Wilson is rarely in Nashville, but I knew if we could make it happen, it would make for a great episode, and that proved to be true. I think Rita ended up crying twice in this entire interview, and this is just a small portion of that, so I highly encourage you to go back and listen to episode 368. Here is Rita Wilson talking about being a first-generation American and her parents' heroic journey to the United States. I do want to go back, though, because I'm curious about kind of your roots and even what it was like growing up, like how people turn out the way they are. What was your house like at seven years old? Who's there? Where do you live? Wow, that is such a great question. Well, I'm a first-generation American. My mom was Greek and my dad was Bulgarian, and they both had to escape their various countries because during World War II, my mom's village was on the border of Greece and Albania. And as things got tough, they knew they had to leave. So my mom had to cross over these mountains by herself in the middle of the night to get into Greece, to get to Athens, to eventually restore her American passport because she was born in America. Well, how old was she when, when she had to do that? She was 19 when she left wow. by herself, just with this backpack. I call it a backpack, but it was something on her back that carried this sterling silver flatware that they had brought from New York. Did you ever talk to her about that? Like what was going oh, through her yeah. mind? Like, oh, yeah. When she made that decision where, because that's a hard decision, even if you know you have to do it, it's a hard decision to go, okay, now I, I have to go. Well, the harder decision was that her parents, uh, sorry, her mother was there because her dad had died when they went there on a vacation at four years old just to village visit the village. And um, so her mother was a widow with four kids at a very young age. And they were supposed to leave all together. But they got word that there was going to be a letter coming and they knew in this small village that if somebody came to deliver a letter and no one was there to receive it, that's unusual. Where'd they go? Mm. You know where everybody is. So my mom offered to stay back to get the letter so that she could, the family could go ahead of her and then there would be no suspicion aroused. Like cover. Like cover, exactly. And then my dad, he... um, was born in Greece and raised in Bulgaria. And, oh, my God, his story is so... I don't know how much time we have. Yeah, we but, have all the time. It's, okay, it's okay. It's a story that you... It's it's uh, who I am. Yeah, that, that's it's what exactly I know. who I am. And we'll lead back to Christian Bush in a second. Um, but it, he wanted... He, it's so sad, but he met a woman, he had a baby, 
and um, they they were married, had a baby, and on December twenty sixth, the baby died. And on December, sorry, on a December twenty sixth, the baby was born. On December twenty ninth, the mother died, his wife, and four months later, the baby died. His name was Emil. I didn't know this at all. I did that show, Who Do You Think You Are? And all of this came out. My dad never told me that. So he tried to escape Bulgaria, I think just out of sheer unhappiness. And my dad really loved the idea of America. So tries to escape, gets caught, goes. They say to him, if you try to escape again, we're going to make you an enemy of the state. and We're going to put you in jail. He does it again. He gets caught. And they put him in a labor camp. And this labor camp was one of the most severe labor camps that, that at the time, communist labor camp. He gets a job. It's a coal sort of mining labor camp. And he notices that at the night shift, there are these trains that come in and they pick up amounts of coal and they take them away. It feels like a movie. I mean, it, honestly, it, it it's like truly, a movie where like, I'm, uh, it's suspenseful and I'm nervous <laughs> watching the movie and I know it's not real. But this is, you're telling me a real, a real story about your dad. This, yes. And he, um, he, he bribes one of the guards with a, a carton of cigarettes that I guess somebody gave him as a gift on visiting day. And uh, he wanted to work the night shift because he knew if he worked the night shift, he had a plan. So he sees the trains come in. He's working the night shift. He says, hey, can we go down and get some more uh, firewood for the um, fire? They were on a break. It's like 2 in the morning. And the guard says, yeah, sure. He says, can I take Richard with me? Because, you know, easier to bring more wood back. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, sure. So they go down there and they slotted themselves between the trains where they couldn't be seen and they started running. 20 minutes later, they figured it out. He could hear the dogs barking and they just ran and ran and ran and ran. Eventually got away made their way to Turkey. I'm trying to make it very slow, uh, quick. You don't have to make it quick. Got on a boat that was, uh, my dad got a job on a freighter boat shoveling coal and made his way to uh, Philadelphia and jumped the ship. But what he did was he took Richard with him as a stowaway because there was no work for Richard. And so he was stowed away in the, basically the engine room. (laughs) And Richard and my dad made it to America and Richard went on to New Zealand and became a very, very successful um, uh, businessman. Wow. Yeah. And I, so here's the thing about that is that I felt like when you said, what's it like at seven years old? I was keenly aware of how lucky my parents felt that they were. And they always said things like, my dad was always, God bless America, every single day. And I felt like, I'm really lucky. I live in America. You know, I was really proud. And uh, he never took that for granted. And Christian and I wrote a song because I I thought to myself, I wonder if courage is handed down. Does courage get handed down? Do we learn that from somewhere? Do people, do people, can they do it? And I thought we wrote a song called Heart He Handed Down, Christian Bush and I, because I really thought it was for my children, for my my kids, like to say this this guy lives in you. You know, he's. I'd like to ask a couple questions about your dad, if that's okay. Because holy, holy moly, the the fact that he first tried to escape, right? Just to, just to try to leave for a better life. Yes. A lot of bravery there. He got caught. Yeah. I'd probably be like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I almost got. I don't <laughs> want to. I don't want to go to jail. Yeah. I don't want to be labeled a terrorist. Basically, is what they yes. said to him. He does it again. Gets caught again. Okay, so now though, if they would have caught him a third time, trying to leave labor camp, oh, it, he would have been shot and killed. They would have killed him. He, absolutely. And when I went back to do that program, they took me to the you know hall of records, let's say, from the Bulgarian government, and he was listed as an enemy of the state. He had a number. If they ever caught him, he would have been put in jail for life. Who knows what else? The other thing I wanted to go back to is. So his first son, Emil, was born on December 26th. Well, my sister, her daughter, firstborn daughter, was born on December 26th. And my youngest son, Truman, is born on December 26th. And I thought, all those birthdays that my dad, on December, he was celebrating my his grandchildren and also his son. And he was there to see them be about. born? He was there to yes, see them, yeah. Yes, yes, He died when he was 89. My mom died when she was 93. That also is, 
they live to be <laughs> a wonderfully old age. Yes, yes. After, and still after married. all of that. <laughs> and, and when I ask what you were like at seven, and I can move to 13 now because I see the picture of your parents, and it's, it's, a, it's a vague picture, but it's a strong picture, right? Like right. A, I would assume that the values they taught you even maybe not always purposeful, but just because what was instilled in them was like, we don't stop. Like we, if it's something we're passionate about, that's what we value. That's what we, I assume values were just so big in your house. No, it was huge. Like my dad was a bartender. My mom didn't work and my parents were not educated, but they were very intelligent and they had enormous character. And, uh, it was it was really fun because my mom also you know she did everything she could sew cook she made our curtains our bedspreads our clothes like if I went shopping for a pair of jeans I'd be like oh these are cute and she's like I can make those I'm like no mom <laughs> I want a pair of jeans <laughs> what jeans I can buy in a store <laughs> okay um, but uh, I I really learned that value of hard work because I saw how hard my dad worked and because he would get tips he'd bring the tips home. And he would bring them home and, you know, those purple felt bags from Crown Royal bottles? We used to keep changing them. Okay, exactly. He would bring his tips home in that, the coins. On Saturday mornings, we'd take them all out, separate out the nickels, the dimes, the quarters, the pennies, put them in the little paper uh, rolls that, you know, you take to the bank, write the account number on and take them that way. And I thought to myself, my God, like he raised a family of three in Hollywood, never had debt. And I didn't even get a credit card until I was 17 because I was like, Dad, I can't get a credit card unless you get a credit card. So can you please get one so that I can have one on your account? And um, and I I think that's amazing because you probably can't do that nowadays, you know. That's why you're never late. I mean, I mean, that's (laughs) and we laugh. We honestly we laugh, but that's probably like deep down in your guts. That's like, I'm not late because I need to respect the other people that are showing up on time. Yeah. Because my parents taught me. Yes. Like, that's a really amazing comeback to that part of the, the, the conversation here where you're like, yeah, I'm not late. Yeah, you know why you're not late <laughs> even though you're a big star? Because your parents have instilled this in you and it's still sitting with you today. That that's is- so cool. I, that, that's very, very nice to think of that way. Yeah, they were just really good people. And I think having parents that... um were immigrants and had accents and things like that. I remember absolutely feeling like people sort of treated them differently. And and I don't mean that in a positive way because they just assumed that they weren't smart or, or not American in that sense, born in America. And um, there was something about that, I think, that allowed it in a way it teaches you empathy because I knew, like, these people are awesome. My parents are fantastic people, even though somebody may not be treating them that way. So you kind of connect to that in a way. So seven years old, I was a really happy kid and um, and very, you know, like, it, it was just a very typical childhood. Even though it was Hollywood, California, it was still very typical. Could have been any town USA. At number four is Billy Ray Cyrus from episode 340. Billy Ray is a very polarizing guy when he walks into the room. And he was so open and honest throughout this entire interview. And he even brought his guitar with him and was just randomly going into songs. So this is definitely one you got to listen to the full episode. But this is Billy Ray Cyrus talking about getting his big break right before he thought about giving up on music and the moment he decided to get clean. 1989, 1990, uh, 1989, in one week, I, uh, I wrote three of the songs off the album, Some Gave All, including Some Gave All. I'd met a Vietnam veteran in Huntington, West Virginia, at the little bar I played that night, and um, that song happened to be the song that I played for Harold Shedd when, after 10 years of being told no, for the first time, somebody said yes. And That was the song that made someone go, hey... I see like a flicker of something in you. That's right. I came in and uh, it was actually, I was I was down. That was going to be my last try. I said, if this doesn't work, I better get a job at the railroad. I had this song I'd written. I, some gave all the song I should play. And then he said, I'm going to structure your little deal. And uh, Mercury Records started a process of 
offered me a record deal, and it took a year or two to make that. And the to album make the itself, record, it took a well, year or two. It actually only took two weeks to make the record. In the summer of uh, 1991, two weeks, I was living in my car, parked in the um, parking lot of the Music Mill, and we recorded uh, all ten tra- uh, nine tracks during the first week of June, and I stuck around and sang all my vocals and did all my harmonies and all my overdubs on the second week of June. And then I went back to my gig in West Virginia and uh, got fired. A big fist fight broke out, and and some guns were involved, and and me and the band stopped playing. And uh, the owner said, if you don't keep playing, you're fired. So out of the highest moment of my life came the lowest, and I found myself in Richmond, Virginia at a disco where they just hated us. I mean, they hated everything we did except for when we would play this new song I'd cut called, at the time it was called Don't Tell My Heart. And I noticed no matter how bad they hated us, when I played Don't Tell My Heart, they packed the dance floor. And and after that, I told Mercury Records, I said, man, that one song, Don't Tell My Heart, um, it's a dance song. The Even the boot scooters, they'd get out there and scoot them boots across the floor. And I, I said, I think that song might be called Achy Breaky Heart because the drunks or whoever always say, Play that achy breaky song. That's how you suggested it because the people at the bar were like, play achy breaky. Break that achy breaky That's song. That's funny. But it was called Don't Tell My Heart. And um, Don Von Trist, the Vietnam veteran who ironically wrote the song, uh, when he came to meet me at the music meal, um, I said, hey, uh, sir, did you ever think about changing the name of that song to uh, achy breaky heart? And he said, I don't care what you call it. Let's just get it, get them to put it out. And uh, they did. And Did you think, and I have some questions about achy break your heart in a minute but some gave all again that's that's what you wrote on my guitar like i I have affinity for that song and for the message Mm -hmm. when you cut that record which is some gave all that's Mm -hmm. the title track did you feel like that was going to be like the song for you that represented who you were first everything was on the line with some gave all because that was big test for me and my band one of the things i had insisted on was i wanted to use my band on the session we played every night together and we'd worked the songs up very similar to the Springsteen E Street sound. We just had a, a band sound. I said, I really want to use my band. And Harold Shedd said, you know what? We, we'll try them for one song. On January the 3rd, 1991, they gave us a test at the mill, and we got to cut one song, and we cut Some Gave All. And um, they said, okay, we love it. Let's do nine more. And they wow. scheduled the nine for the June. So that's like, oh, man, I got to live five, six more months. And that's when uh, Don't Tell My Heart came into my life, and I threw off one of my songs I'd written and added that one just because it felt special. Whenever Achy Break Your Heart, mm-hmm. they come to you and go, hey, I want this to be the first single. Are mm-hmm. you like, I agree, or are you like, I don't know, I have th- these other songs that I feel very passionate about? I, I felt like there was one. Like you There did. was something about yeah. it that especially um, just because of... When we would play it, you could just feel the energy and the dance floors would pack. And again, by then, they'd, I started getting these little jobs at country clubs like where they had a lot of uh, boot scoot dancing and that kind of thing. And and that really wasn't my expertise. It was more of like either I was playing Southern Rock or songs I'd written or George Jones and Johnny Cash and like the standards of country. And uh, But when I'd play uh, Achy Breaky, they'd just pack it out. And it just, so that was kind of, it felt like a hit. Obviously, Achy Breaking Heart was a massive song, but my song was, where am I going to live? Oh, when yeah, I get, my, I mean, I, I loved oh, that. Thanks, and that man. video on CMT. Yeah, thanks. That song to me is you. Thank you. And I don't I know how you that. feel about that because. I feel like you have me. All, okay. I, I do feel like me. Again, now that was during the uh, month of May of 1989. And uh, what had happened was the gig I'd play in uh, West Virginia, we'd start on Tuesday night. We'd play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So five nights a week, four sets a night. And on a Tuesday night, I stayed out all night up to the next morning. And I I was married to a very kind lady in Ohio at the time. And um, I didn't come home. It was sunrise Wednesday morning, and I probably reeked of liquor and um, maybe some lipstick on my collar. I don't know, but it, it was ugly. And I've like the sun's up and my normal neighbors that have real jobs are going to work. And I'm out in front of the house in that red truck that's in the video. And I'm going, where am I going to live? Where am I going to live? Where am I going to live when I get home? And I, said, I wrote it right then. Well, then I go in, everything goes to crap. And, but I had the song. And then that night I went back to the gig and I was 
pretty down and depressed and sad, and I wrote, uh, She's Not Crying Anymore on Wednesday. And then I didn't write anything on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. And on Sunday, I met Sandy Kane and wrote Some Gave All. So during that one week of May, I wrote three three of those songs in uh, 1989 during that week. All in a week. In a week, yeah. It's almost Dolly-esque when she goes, you know, I sat down for this day and I wrote these two songs. And, you know, you're like, well, I know both of those songs. You wrote them the same day. The fact that you kind of nailed those three in that time period. And I feel like creatively, it almost takes things to happen to us to kind of... um, create emotion and share emotion what was happening in your life that had you feeling these feelings to create this dynamic music you think i think it was an excess of alcohol um there was probably some uh i hate to even say them there was it was a pretty rough time so it, um, so it was a very excessive was a, was alcohol. A I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, but were for you, sure. when you say excessive, did you know it was a problem or were you just partying too hard? I was actually working. It was like part of my job. I always had a rule. I said, okay, I'll go play the first set completely straight, straight up. Could and you the, play a set straight and feel, yeah, feel good? Yeah. yeah, I felt really good. I always felt like the first set was like probably my most correct. <laughs> and then um, the second set, like in between the break, I might uh, take a little puff. And then um, go up to the second set, and I feel looser. That's probably the best set of the night. But by the third set, I'd have a puff, uh, possibly, unfortunately, maybe a snort. Um, unfortunately, like then came like it was part of people partying would send me drinks, and some of those drinks would be on fire. Some would be like double shots of who knows what. I don't know what it takes to light a drink up and then blow it out and drink. But I would do that. That was so by third set. We was rocking pretty hard. Four set, I was probably legally drunk. And um, unfortunately, um, uh, Keith Whitley was uh, from my neck of the woods up there in Kentucky. And I was a huge Keith Whitley fan. And um, when he died, that had a big impact on me. Like, I can't finally get to this point where my dream's about to come true, but yet I have some issues. So him... And- him having his issues and yeah. dying, mm-hmm. did it? Did you feel like it was uh, kind of a mirror? He saved my life. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. He saved my life because my manager Jack McFadden was Keith Whitley's manager, and he was he was like a son to Jack. And Jack, at that point, I was on his roster, but he had never seen me play, never heard my music, didn't know exactly what it was that I did, but he knew it wasn't exactly straight up country. And Jack had managed. Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and Keith Whitley. And uh, tragically, on May the 9th, and again, this is 1989, um, May the 9th, um, Jack was going to take me to Sony Records for the first time. Jack was going to take me anywhere. And again, I don't think he'd even heard any of my songs, but we had an appointment. So I came down on the 8th. Tragically, Keith Whitley uh, passed away on the morning of the 9th. And uh, the meeting was canceled, obviously. And I drove back home to Huntington, West Virginia, and uh, played I'm No Stranger to the Rain over and over and over and over and over. I about played it 100 times between here and Huntington. And um, it just had a huge impact on me. And uh, luckily in uh, 1991, when I realized that, hey, Cyrus, you're about to get your chance, this... This you got the album that everybody seems to really believe something. Uh, well, they told me, said, "Man, hang in there. It's, this is about to happen." And I stopped at a bridge down here on the Harpeth somewhere and threw all my stuff into the river, and um, said, I, "I I I can't do this and and not be at my very best." I've worked. When you too say hard through your stuff, moment. do you mean do you mean your actual stuff or drugs? Cocaine. Got it. Got the, so, damn, the damn so devil ass cocaine. And, and you were cold turkey did. I pulled over and threw my damn cocaine out. Would and, you have considered yourself an addict or someone who and I come from a, a massive family of addiction. So I mm-hmm. were you an addict or were you someone who just enjoyed it but could also if you needed to stop stop? Uh, I don't think I could stop stop. Uh I especially on alcohol because I drank since I was a kid, and I ain't had a beer since. Like, I mean, that I had to stop everything, except I did say, you know what? Having a little puff every now and then of marijuana helps me. 
It's medicine to me. And uh, so I kind of allowed myself to say, okay, if you get rid of these two devil, alcohol and the cocaine, you can keep a little bit of the marijuana because that's kind of your medicine. And, um, and you never look back. No. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. At number three from episode 342 is Cheryl Crow. I rarely get starstruck, but it was so cool having Cheryl Crow in to do an episode of the Bobby cast. So this is probably the closest I've been to starstruck in a very long time. And I had just watched her documentary on Showtime and I truly believe she is a living legend. So how cool to have Cheryl Crow just pull up on her own over to Bobby's house and sit down to do an interview. So this is number three, Cheryl Crow talking about the song she doesn't like to perform anymore, working with Michael Jackson and what it's like to be famous. And when it comes to those songs, you know, when you walked in, we we're talking for a second, and you were you tell you to tell me something good, which is a segment we do. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, full transparency here, I do that segment so many times, and I'm glad I it has been a big part of our mm-hmm. show in the six. But I do it all the time, and I've done it all the time for years and years. You start to go, man, I know people love it, but I got to keep doing it. Do you feel that way about some of the oh some of God. your songs? Okay, it's funny. I was listening to you guys this morning. I was like, your show is always so good and fun and funny. It has emotional highs. I mean, it's just a really great show. And I sat there and thought, I wonder if he ever just gets sick <laughs> of doing that show. You know what I mean? And also being uh, being present because it's hard work, man. Like there's some nights where I walk out on stage and I have to like, fake it until I make it. And generally, those are the best shows. But there was a period where if I thought I had to play All I Want to Do one more time, I would just run straight out in front of a Mack truck. And it took it took my, I mean, part of it is it took my getting sick to really realize. I mean, that song took me all over, all over the Middle East. I mean, we went to Israel. We went to, we went to Tokyo, to Kuala Lumpur, to Indonesia. We went all over South. People who couldn't speak English sang every word of that wordy song. And I had, I just embraced a full-on gratitude. And I enjoy playing it now. But there were a few years in there where I was just like, oh, God, I'm sick of this song. You know, I hate this song. I hate this song. Um, But I love it, you know. I think part of what happens is, is you get older, you get really, you know, you get sentimental. And you get really grateful and you get really boring. And I love being boring now. It's cool to reappreciate. It yeah. is, it is. Because I've started to find myself reappreciating not just professional things, but also personal things. And so it's cool that you have, because I, I live it. And one day I'm going to like doing Tell Me Something Good again. 
Yeah. One day I'm going to, and, and I don't You hate can't it. tell that you don't like it, though. I mean, I will say that. It's not even that I don't like it. It's that, as you do, you, you play just the same worn song. out. It's just we do it four, four times a day. Yeah. Five days a week. Yeah. 20 times. And individually, all the stories are great. But it's like, man, I got to do this 20 times again this week. Do you hate Shaka Khan now? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I, uh, Rufus, cool with me. Shaka Khan, cool with me. Uh, and we go places, and what's funny, sometimes I'll go into a place if it's a bar or a restaurant. I don't go to bars as much anymore, but they'll play that song over the top like once they see I'm there. Oh, my gosh. And like that's so been associated with, yeah. I'll, I'll just be, or a uh, basketball game, mm-hmm. and you'll hear, dun, 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 and I'll look up, and, like, and you'll see the guy running, pointing at me, and like, all right, yeah, oh, hey, buddy. Man. So did you ever, you, you talk about Stevie Nicks, did you ever have a relationship with her? Did you guys ever? Oh, my gosh. Like that had to be the coolest thing. I have so many weird experiences um, with people like that. Okay, so I like, uh, if you dig back through the annals of my um, my school pictures, I had the Stevie Nicks hairdo. I met her at my first Grammys. I met her at an after party, and I have a picture with her and Anita Pointer and Bonnie Raitt and Carly Simon and me. And I was the newbie. And she's like, I love you. Would you, I'm getting ready to do some songs for Practical Magic, that, that movie. Would you produce it? And I was like, uh, yeah. And she came to New York and, and she had her posse, you know, some bunch of women and, and I produced her and it was just, it was unbelievable. I can remember looking at her out, um, in the recording booth and she looked like a 14 year old. I mean, literally she looked like she had not aged a day. She looked exactly as I remembered her. And she just was like, so embracing and so generous, like told stories. Like I, I imagine that we probably talked and hung out for two hours and then she'd sing. And then we'd hang out and talk for a couple of hours and then she'd sing. And it was, but it was so glorious. And then she said, well, you were pre- produce the record. And I went up producing and going on the road with her and she's just been like very godmom to me and i i don't want you to say any names here but i have had experiences where i really was like loved people got to know them mm-hmm. not that cool ruin the experience okay, yeah. people that i would I, and i now uh don't really idolize it yeah except for like hearts yeah like, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. So, but there have been times where that's happened and I'm like, well, I cannot believe I get to spend time. We're going to do, and then you're like, oh man, I kind of wish I wouldn't have yeah. because it's ruined what yeah. I cherish, which was the, these beliefs. And yeah, I'm with how massive you got, I had to assume that happened to some. I will say I've been really lucky. Almost everybody I've met has been beyond, beyond my wildest dreams. Um, I got a few people I want to introduce you to then. Yeah, I bet you do. We'll fix that. We'll fix that. Uh, <laughs> a few relatives. Yes. Interestingly, I worked with Michael Jackson before I hit it big. I was a backup singer. Went on the road with him for eighteen months, and there were some things on that tour. I was just like, "This doesn't make sense." And then later on, the documentary came out, and um, I mean, he he was he was already eccentric on that tour, but people ask me all the time, "Are you able to listen to his music?" And I'm like, "Man, that was the first album I ever owned. I got it from Santa Claus when I was five years old. ABC. I grew up watching his TV show. I." You know, all that music was was important to me. And it definitely changed the way I felt about him. And But I can still listen to the music from when he was a kid because I feel like he was who he was then. He wasn't who he became. But for the most part, I mean, I can't really think of anybody that's just been a douchebag, you know what I mean? Okay. Woodstock 99. I did watch the documentary. You have a, an appearance in it. Yeah, what the Was age? it like that? real you were an it artist was, so you're separated a bit right but what was it like for you it was uh it, whatever i can tell you it was worse than that whatever you can envision it was absolutely awful and it makes me sad because the first the very first one obviously i wasn't at the second one was i mean euphoric it was such a beautiful celebration of the first one the next one was what was wrong it was everything with what was wrong with what the music business was becoming, which was money, 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 money. And it was degrading to women. It was a demonstration of the worst of what's in us with people throwing feces and throwing pennies and water bottles. It was just a bizarre experience. And even the bill wasn't, it was not a, it was not a bill that was sensitive to people coming together and being a part of something cool and peaceful, which is what Woodstock 
is emblematic yeah, it's of. It's pretty you angry. Know? The bill was pretty angry. It was like Andy Dick and then Sheryl Crow and then the insane clown posse. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, what is happening here? I didn't even finish my set. I mean, at which point well, okay, you didn't feces landed on my on no they, my base neck. I was like, yeah, you know what? Did you just peace out? Walk I, off? I was like, yeah, I was. I just walked up to the mic and I was like, I'm done. What is fame like when you first get just true freaking fame? Yeah. And- when you walk into a restaurant and they have a table or when you, um, when you never have to pay for anything. Like that's always been a weird thing. Like they're going to send me clothes. Why? I mean, I'm happy with the stuff I bought at the, you know, secondhand place. Um, it's a, it does a number on you for sure. And the number it did for, did on me was, this is, this is amazing. I don't know if I deserve it. So you start questioning yourself. But then the other part of it is when you stop getting invited, or let's just say in the, in the instances where you're not the most popular person on the red carpet, you start feeling insecure. It's like you get this bright, shiny coat of paint, and then suddenly there are little cracks in the veneer. Like, well, how do I smooth the crack out so I'm still, I'm still the most popular? And it really totally does a number on you. And then you start thinking about, okay, what, what do I have to write to, get, to stay in the top 10, to keep getting played at radio? And that's no good either. You're I mean, saying it changes your direction creatively from what do I have to say to there's a difference of yeah. what do I have to write yeah. that oh, people yeah. will like, not because I'm saying it and feeling it, but because yeah. I know I'm trying to chase what they like. Yeah. And then there is that moment where you're about to turn 40 and you're still popular, but um, everything on the radio is Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and they're 17 and they're wearing schoolgirl outfits, and you're about to be 40. And that doesn't number, because 40 doesn't get played at radio. It's just a weird thing. You know, there's not anything realistic about it. And I do wonder with girls today that seem to be, like, navigating their own. They, they're in control of their social media. They project their images, and the images sometimes are sexual, or most of the time are sexual. And that, as long as they're in control of that, like, how much of it are they able to, because I I don't read even a sentence about myself. I don't read anything because I'm too sensitive. Like how do girls now, especially when you're bringing looks into it and body image and all that, how do they not, how is it not demoralizing? Because fame to me was already like, okay, I'm a really private person and I'm a really nice person. So, and Everything I'm reading about myself is, okay, I got my hair cut. Now I look like a soccer mom. I mean, just like mean stuff. How does anybody navigate it? I I don't know. It did a number on me for sure. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At number two from episode 350 is Gavin DeGraw. This was a really emotional episode, and I left in all of the silence that Gavin gave us during the moments where he got emotional because talking about this album that he did about his parents and had to talk about them passing away. So a lot of emotional moments throughout this entire episode. And in addition to being such a great vocalist and songwriter, he is a great storyteller. So this made for an excellent episode. This is Gavin DeGraw talking about wanting to finish his new album before his dad passed and the moment he got to listen to it and his dad's reaction to the very first song on this album. So here is Gavin DeGraw. The, the new record is really freaking good. I, told you, I told you this before we even came in here. Appreciate it. That it's Thank like, you. this is music that I listen to when I just mm. get to listen to music. Mm. And, you know, that's how how deep this record hit. And that's even before mm. I knew the reason you wrote, recorded, mm. and put the record out when you did. Yeah. And so I want to start there. And, and, you, and I rarely want to play a song from the front of the record because then I feel like people go, well, that's just the first song. So... But face the river, mm. and that, you know that's the first track. I, th- I believe you sent it to me on what was the service? Uh, SoundCloud. I believe mm. the sound you sent me a SoundCloud link mm. the record. And so I'm just in the car with my wife. I'm just hitting it, and face the river comes on. I'm like, God dang! If every song's like this, and it was just one after the other. And Thank you. Mike, if you'll play some face the river for me, track one, please. What are you singing about there? I picture my. My, my my mother had already passed. Uh, my dad was already diagnosed um, with glioblastoma. I visualized my father looking across the river at my mother, having to face that particular point in his uh, in his life. It's tough, but uh, uh, but I think that it's material. I didn't I didn't want to shy away from. I could I couldn't I couldn't shy away from it because of the time in my life that I was writing it, you know, watching. Uh, you're experiencing these things with, with these people, um, watching them go through a stage of their life that we all know is coming at some point. Um, we all we all have some shared destiny. And uh, um, I couldn't ignore... I couldn't ignore what I was seeing and just go off in my corner and pretend like there was another world that I could focus on. I, there, there was happening right in front of me, you know, <clears throat> uh, even if it's a car crash. Um, you know, it, uh, you, you have to, you have to see it and uh, know what it is and, you know, you're hoping that the results aren't going to be as bad as they are, but you know it's a car crash, um, and uh, I had to document it. I had to document how how I felt and, and what I thought maybe he felt. Uh, you know, art—it's art, man. It—it—it's it, not product. It's—it's it's art. And and it, it should reflect it should reflect uh, a real moment in time and and, uh, and and it's it's called a record, man. You know, a record, a record, a document, a, a, something permanent. We should make a record of where we're at and have that be so it's known. This is what it was. This is what happened. You know, just the way you look at any piece of history. Um, and then that's what it is. You put it as track one. It's such a powerful song, and obviously it's the name of the record, and, you know, sometimes the record's named after the track. You know, mm. th- there's never just a layout of what the order is supposed to be, meaning. Mm-hmm. So that is, if not the most, one of the most powerful songs on the record, and it just, you turn, you, you play the record, first song, boom, punch right in the gut. A beautiful punch in the gut. I mean, in a way of, like, you emotionally... Are, are stung by it. Usually, mm-hmm. that didn't Thank happen you. on track one. Like, why you you went for it immediately? Was there <laughs> any sort of symbolism there with that? Um, 
Well, I th- I think the the main thing was this is a different kind of record, and that was the that was the big thing. It was, you know, just letting the audience know that this is different. It's very different, um, uh, and more pre- preparing them for everything else. <laughs> you know, boy, you did. I mean that. Yeah. And to also hear that story, because this record, not only important because it's music, it's art that you're putting into the world, Yeah. but, and I know you and I talked about this on a, in a different place, but yeah. you wanted to make this, write this record, record this record, and have it ready um, for your dad before he passed away. Yeah. And did you have any sort of idea, like, how fast you needed to actually get this done? No. But I didn't know it was, you know, I knew it was bad. Um but you know there's no there's not ever an exact time as you know um but it's a limited time and was there a rush on you did you feel like i got to work fast i don't i just i, I it's a it's a it's a de- it's a timeline that you've got to follow but you don't actually know where correct the- correct exactly there's no exact deadline that you're aware of right um you know weeks and weeks earlier he's in the hospital he said to me, it was hard for him to talk because of where the tumor was. And he was saying to me, a bit like marble mouth is how he was trying having to communicate, unfortunately. Um, but he said, you know, I want to hear the music. You know, aren't you playing me the music? I said, it's not done yet, Dad. I want you to hear it. Like, I want you to hear it when it's right. It's really important to hear it when it's right. You got to hear it when it's right. I'm like really uptight about, you know, my job and um come on play me something play me something i'm in the hospital with my sister and uh and uh i said let me okay okay let me let me see let me see oh, let me see i reach out to dave cobb i say hey, my dad's in the hospital he's really, really he's begging me for these songs is there any way just to send me a, a mix of just just a couple of songs i'd love for for him to hear a couple of songs, just a couple of songs really help. Yeah, 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 sure. So a couple minutes later, he sends me three songs, sends me Face the River <clears throat> and uh, Destiny and uh, Summertime. And uh, and uh, um, so dad starts crying when he hears the, the first high note of, uh, of the chorus of uh, Face the River. He's really feeling it right away, you know, um, really reacting. And um, <clears throat> I play him the songs, the three that I had. And he says, uh, I wish your mother could have heard these. I wish your mother could hear this right now, this record. And I says, uh, uh, she wrote the record, Dad. Yeah, she wrote the record. And he says, she did. She did write the record. Some weeks go by. I'm trying to finish the album because I know st- State is not good. Um, album is done. I take it to him immediately. I said, Daddy, you want to hear the album? The whole album now. He said, yeah, yeah. So I put headphones on. I turn it up so I could hear where it's at, you know, loud enough. He likes it loud anyway. And we go straight through the record, top to bottom. And he's so moved. And um, <clears throat> I said, you want to hear it again? Play it for me again later. Let's do it later. I said, good, okay. My brother and I, we hop in the car. We take a drive. A half hour later, half hour after I finished playing that record, phone rings, and uh, my dad's having an emergency. They need to take him to the hospital immediately. There was some kind of complication. And so he's taken the hospital and put on heavy drugs and, you know, for the next day and a half, um, he's just on heavy drugs for that, you know, that slow boat ride out, you know. Um, so <clears throat> however the timing worked out, I, without exaggeration, got to play him the whole record in the nick of time. And, um, and it's... uh that's a little bit of closure I get. <laughs> um, is that is is that I got to give him that that experience and say, uh, you know, 
this is, you know, your dedication, you know, so, um, very hard, but, uh, but, uh, damn, I hate crying. Uh, I mean, I appreciate the vulnerability. I mean, you can tell the love that you have for your mom and your dad. You can also tell when you listen to this record. I mean, even if you didn't know why, let's say someone just came across this record on a playlist, not even individual songs, but mm. you, may, you may like, Gavin DeGraw, Face the River, I think you would listen to this and go, well, something's got him. Yeah. Like something, it's, this, it just feels different. It feels like there's, there's, yeah. It feels like there is, it feels very deliberate in the, in the most beautiful way. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com and at number one from episode 364 is Ronnie Dunn of Brooks and Dunn. Not only does Ronnie have a great singing voice, I also just love his speaking voice. He could be talking about his grocery list and I would find myself just being sucked in to every single word that leaves his mouth. So in every essence, this entire interview is just fun to listen to. But he shared stories that I had no idea about. Stories that you can't find online anywhere. One of those happened to be the time he lived in Johnny Cash's cabin. And that's where you're going to hear in this clip also about the origin story of Brooks and Dunn and getting the call out of the blue to move to Nashville. So the number one Bobby cast of 2022, Ronnie Dunn of Brooks and Dunn. Uh, Scott Hendricks uh, took uh, the, the tape to uh, Tim Dubois, who was starting Arista Records at the time, and still trying to fill in a, a balanced roster. And uh, Clive Davis was was behind it, of course, and that, that never hurts. Uh, at a time in the business when it was not a great great time to to start a label, but tell Clive Davis that right. right? So Tim comes out and hear, hears me in in uh, Tulsa because he's from Grove, Oklahoma. He hears us play, and he goes, okay, after we get through, he takes me back, and he goes, okay, I'm going to tell you this. He says, hold tight for me. He says, just like I'm going somewhere, right? <laughs> back, goes, to the, back to Weed Eat. Yeah, he goes, hold, yeah, right. I'll get the other side of the fence to Weed Eat. Uh, and he says, I'm, I'm putting the record label together. I got Alan, Alan Jackson and uh, Pam Tillis, Diamond Rio, and he said, I'm, I'm up to something here. So he says, if you'll just, just have a little faith and patience in me, I'm going to go there. So, you know, a year later, I hadn't heard anything from him. A year? Yeah. That's a lot of patience. Yeah. Well, where else do you go? I don't have a choice, you yeah. know. Uh, and sure enough, I uh, uh, Janine comes down one day and tells me to put the weed eater down, come up to the house, get on the phone. She says, call Tim Dubois and see what's going on. Because I'm just, I'm shy. I wouldn't do that, you know. And she's not. I called Tim, and he goes, mister? I said, this is unreal. I said, I'm sitting here with my Rolodex right now looking for your number. And I went, no, you're not. And he goes, yes, I am. He goes, I want to cut Boot Scoot Boogie. I'm thinking, the flash, me, with me? He goes, well, the sleep at the wheel. So I just signed him. I said, okay, great, you know, knock it out. And he said, come down to Nashville. He says, I'm, I'm going to you know, talk to you and 
we get through and said, listen to the record. So I went with Janine and I got in the car, drove to Nashville, and uh, it was uh, he played it for us. And it's so Asleep at the Wheel did, it, of course, as a swing song. Yeah, very Texas swing. Yeah. And we both just went, Janine and I were like, oh, no, it's not going to work, not going to fly. And so they they ran through their cycle there. And then finally, Tim said, okay, it's time to move here. You know, this is a year, year later, year after that. He said, "Time to move here." He said, "And I'll, I'll get you, I'll get you hooked up as a, as a writer at one of the publishing companies." And uh, he just called out of the blue one day, after June Carter had already called Janine and said, uh, she called her Witter, Witter Patch. That was that was Janine's married name. Uh, she said, "Witter, uh, would you mind you and Ronnie maybe staying at uh, having." Written one of the cabins up on the mountain, which was outside town in Goodlettsville. And uh, Janine started crying. She was like, oh, my God, yes, please. I'll be close to June, who's a friend of hers and all this. So we did. Uh, I, I, uh, Tim put uh, Kicks and I together to write with uh, another another writer in town, Don Cook. Don't, don't jump ahead. Hold on. Okay. Did you ever go meet Johnny Cash? Yes. You drove? Yes. She brought me in to, to meet him. Where? Uh, to his house. Okay. In Hendersonville. Are you nervous? Yeah, I'm scared to death. Okay, I don't. Good. I don't want to meet them, and I know they're thinking, "Hey, you know, she's bringing, you know, a want to be singer into my house." It's just like what I would do with one of my daughters. Just like, ah, oh, please, <laughs> right? Uh, so June takes her out, and, and you know, just uh, John had just given June a uh, a blue on blue Rolls Royce for her birthday. You know, so we roll up to their house, and all this ostentatious stuff is outside, and. Uh, Go in. Nervous? Yes. Yeah, More nervous that you walk closer? Yes. Okay, good. And it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> so the girls, after after day one, you know, we all stop and eat and all this stuff. John's real quiet. He's quiet at first, you know, and he's, he's intimidating anyway, right? And then under those circumstances, I'm going, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be here like this. So the next day, June and uh, Janine go shopping and leave me and John alone at the house. Well, there were two big black recliners in front of this TV, like that on the wall. And uh, he's sitting there watching CNN. And I just sat down with a cup of coffee, and I sat there. I said, uh, something going on in the news? And he goes, yeah, I always watch it. I always watch it. He says, I'll, I, I'm an addict. And he says, I'll watch the TV until the loop changes. He says, you know that, that CNN and all that stuff are on loops. And I'm like, no. Uh-uh. And uh, he goes, I, I just watch it till, you know, till loops, <laughs> whatever, you know. And that was kind of the only thing I remember. <laughs> he, didn't, he just kind of didn't say much. He's like, you want to go fishing? What are you doing? You want to be in music? Nothing like that. So Janine gets back, <clears throat> and she's kind of pale. She's kind of like down. And that's not like her because she's a chatter. And uh, finally we... We went back to, to the bedroom, and she, she, I said, how did it go? And she goes, well, June just gave She read me the right act. You know, she goes, look, you know, because Rodney and Roseanne had been, been married and, and the girls, Carlene and all of them. And, and June had had her struggles with John, too. And she said, uh, it's, it's, it's not, a, not a pretty business. She goes, you know, those, these, these boys, she says, <laughs> they're going to act up on you. You know, they're going to get out there and, you know, theoretically do whatever. And she says, you know. It's just not, it's not a good life, even if he does make it. She said, the chances are, you know, one in a hundred million that they, that even if they make it, will they last? She says, you don't, you don't, you don't want that life. You don't have to have that life. So Janine said, I'm, you know, that's just kind of bummed me out. And I said, well, okay, let's, let's go. <laughs> but we didn't, we stayed and, and, and had a, had a, had a good time. But uh, that was just kind of what we were, we were left with there. But at the same time, June was kind enough uh, to to do whatever they could to help, and they they did. And half the time, more than half the time, I would go to, go up to take the rent or pay the rent, six hundred bucks or something like that. This house looked like something to Johnny's house. You would take the rent to Johnny Cash's house, yes, and just drop it. Did yeah. they have like a hole for but the mail? They, no, or? they wouldn't take it. No, June, I said, June, I'm gonna run over and, and and leave the the rent. And she goes, Honey, don't do that. She said, Don't do that yet. You don't. There's no need for you to do that. We're not worried about that. Uh, anyway, so I, they, they wouldn't take it. Ever, did they ever take your rent? No, no. How long did you live there? A uh, year and a half, two years. No, two years. Did but, Did you ever get closer to Johnny? 
Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Johnny would come up. There was another. It's a little enclave of cabins in, in Goodlisk on top of a hill that uh, they, they had built. Real cool. And uh, uh, he would come up and stay and spend the weekends and stuff sometimes up there just to be alone. And uh, he'd stop at the house. And uh, and I told him, right, okay, I get a record deal with Arista. As a solo artist. As, well, I'm thinking as a solo artist. And uh, I'm still writing. And, t- and Tim says, uh, one day he goes, come over here. He says, we're going to spend the day, and I'm going to take you to every publishing company in town. And I had written, like I said, Neon Moon, Boots, Coot, Hardworking Man, She's Behind, that kind of stuff. Uh, no one acted super excited. And he goes, but I'm, I'm waiting to take you to, to Sony ATV, to Donna Hilly. And he said, that, that's where I want you. He said, that's, that's in his period, the best place in town. So uh, sure enough, she calls one day and uh, says, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a deal. She said, how, how does like, you know, $1,200 a month sound. I was like, whew, I'll take it now. <laughs> and uh, I, so I was set up as a writer in, 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 a, in a great spot. And uh, Tim put me and Tim uh, kicks together. And I'm thinking, and you've heard this story, but or a lot of people have, but uh, kicks is thinking, well, uh, he's writing songs with me for my solo deal. Unbeknownst to me, he had been working on a, a, a another duo deal at Arista. For him? Yes. Him and someone else? Yes. Tim Tim Nichols it was who the first one was. And I, and I heard that it, had I not worked out, it was going to be Leroy Parnell. <laughs> wow, that's funny. <laughs> How about it, huh? Well, they were shopping kicks to a lot of really great... So it was like kicks, you, you're half of something great. You're going to be. Like, yeah, like... Yeah, you're going to be, buddy. You know, I don't... Did yeah. he want to be in a duo? Because uh, it sounds like he had three duos all lined yeah, up for I don't, to check you out. You know, I don't know. I, you have to ask kicks. I don't know, but he'll he'll tell the same story. He said, "Man, I thought you know he was writing for me, and I'm writing for him." So uh, Tim comes in one day, and he has everything in his office lined up, and uh, plays plays all of our music together, you know. And he goes, "I think I think with uh, the first song that we, that we had written together was a uh, uh, brand new man, uh, and uh, working on my next broken heart, and uh, what else?" But you wrote that in a day or in a week? Like uh, a couple of days together. But you stayed together yeah. to write for a couple of days. Yeah, I'd never co-written before, so I didn't know you know what the the protocol was. And uh, we did that, put the records together, and, and did you know some work on them individually ourselves. Was there a creative chemistry that you felt then, or was it? Did you just sound good, or did you compliment each other in a, in a way that you hadn't before? It just it felt good. I liked I liked what he had brought to the table. It was lost and found, and uh, a couple of songs that that were like almost eagles progressive you know and, and i i like that that kind of i was really you know in my creative zen place thinking if we were going to market ourselves as, a, as kind of a southwestern east west of the mississippi you know desert kind of then that's southwest deal did you guys and let's we'll just smash forward just a little bit but did you guys ever have other names for the group, oh, yeah. except for Brooks and Dunn? Yeah, we sat for a day. It was going to be the Coyote Brothers, you know, the Cactus Brothers. We don't know. We sat and filled up uh, notebooks. And finally, it just, you know, I, I left town and came back for after a weekend. And everybody said, let's just call it Brooks and Dunn. You know? They were just exhausted of all the, the, the it never, desert never, references. So. Nothing felt right, <laughs> you know. Rattlesnake, twins, I don't know. How but, does it, because you're both singers, yeah. and I've been to... More than a few shows of you guys, and Kicks sings awesome, too, mm-hmm. awesome too. And he mm-hmm. has he has song. I mean, Kicks has he has style. L- l- yes, yeah, he, he has style. It's just, it's how, how how was that? His name's first, so then you get to sing more songs, or mm-hmm. like how does that well, go when you're both good? Here's the name. Here's how the name thing worked out, and people go, how did that happen? It, it's like his uh, brother-in-law owned a, a big ad company up in Maine. We wanted the logo bad. So we kind of laid out the the basics, and he came back with the you know the Brooks and Dunn because it laid out graphically better uh, there. So, so stylistically, it you could just have been like done in Brooks, looked. but Brooks and Dunn, it, yeah. you know, by now it just seems natural. You no, know, the Beatles, right? What a freaky name, really. Who would you call yourself? Yeah, it's just how successful you are, That's how the normal the name gets. Yeah, 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 yeah. When did it get the most absurd to you? With and again, but you guys were also in your thirties, right? When it started, uh-huh. I wonder if that helped at all with a little bit of the absurdity of how crazy it got. It did, it did, and and a lot of the challenges we would have had, you know, you kind of helps you like fight through the 
the kind of the unspoken ego tension that goes along with with anything. You're trying to establish your turf. Uh, is you know, are you going to be the you know the the lead singer, or am I going to be the lead singer? Hey, we're we're good to throw it together. We we always have. It's just kind of, and I think being older helped help deal with that. Yeah. When you're doing these shows and they're selling out, and you guys are all crossing over even a bit into yeah. not just country music, but you got so big. Yeah. Like at, at its most absurd time, do you can you look back and appreciate it, or was it all such a blur? No, we can look back and appreciate it. You know. No, you know, you, you you appreciate what what you have, and 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 just just from seeing, I mean, other acts come along, you know, countless acts come along. It's like here's the hottest thing in town. Here's the, these guys going to be monsters and all that stuff, and just like boom, boom, gone. It's like why are we not boom, boom, gone? Well, I don't know. That's unspoken. Yeah. Did you ever have what they call, um, Mike? What is it called? Imp- um, imposter syndrome. Yeah, imposter syndrome, where you felt like. You know what? We're not as good as some of these guys yet. We continue to climb places that they're not. Like we don't really deserve to be here. Did yeah. you ever feel like that? Yes. Yeah. Sincerely. Yeah. Why I, do you think that? What do you think the element was about you two? What do you think it was? I don't know. I don't know. Thought we thought about it a million times. I say me, me, we, me and Kicks. I mean, we've talked about it. I don't know. I don't know if, you know, I mean, I do sometimes. I said I lay in bed by myself and just go. It's just. I mean, was it because we were involved with Clive Davis and Tim? I've asked Tim Dubois. I said, what What made this thing work? And he goes, mister, I don't have a clue. What about the songs, right? Do you ever just fall back and go? Yeah, I think, yes. This could be the songs. I, well, they say it starts there. So it could be just what those songs were, you know. And there's obviously other things that go into the stew. But if the songs are your meat. That's it. That's the foundation of it all. That's, that's you know, bar none. That, that's where it starts. There you have it. The top 10 Bobby cast of 2022 will return next week with brand new episodes. And if there's anybody you think we need to have on the podcast this year, slide into our DM, send us those requests. We're on Instagram at the Bobby cast also on TikTok at the Bobby cast. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, I host a movie podcast called movie Mike's movie podcast with spoiler free reviews, interviews with actors and directors. So just search Movie Mike wherever you listen to podcasts or find the link in the notes of this episode. My name is Mike D and we'll talk to you next time here on the Bobbycast. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.